And I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. You all know that I love Christmas. I love Christmas. Christmas is a great time. I love the the red cups that you get at Starbucks. I love the freezing cold weather. I love the Christmas carols, even though some of you don't. I love Christmas. I just listened to Joy to the World uh, two days ago while I was driving in my car. I love it. I love Christmas. I love Good Friday even more than Christmas. Um, Good Friday is the culmination of what Christmas was intended to do. Christmas, apart from Good Friday, is honestly just a weird story of a baby being born and a bunch of people showing up uh, in the hospital bedroom saying, who is this guy? Let's worship him and give him presents. It's a weird story if you don't understand Good Friday. I love Good Friday. My favorite services in recent memories are Good Friday services where we get to gather together and worship Jesus for what he accomplished on the cross. So I love Christmas. I love Good Friday even more. But Good Friday, apart from Easter, isn't a weird story. It's just a sad story. Good Friday, apart from Easter, is a sad story. A man who is innocent, condemned to die, dies an awful death, is buried And all of his followers who thought he was going to be something special leave feeling hopeless. So I love Christmas. I love Good Friday even more. But I love Easter more than all of them. Because anything of Jesus' story, of the narratives in Scripture, and of the work that he came to do apart from Easter, Paul tells us, would be futile to worship, would be futile to enjoy and to celebrate. Good Friday apart from Easter would be a pointless celebration. But we have reason to celebrate. Better news than Jesus Christ being raised from the dead simply does not exist. In this world, there is no better news than you can possibly hear, know, understand, and study than that of Jesus being raised from the dead. Now, many of you believe that. Many of you believe that. But the question that comes from that understanding is, so how does this change my life? It does. It drastically does. And we tend to look at the intellectual aspect of that. But this morning, I want you to know the hope that is within you because of the resurrection. I want you to know what the resurrection produces in you and the hope that you have in Christ because of what he did by conquering sin, conquering death, and rising to newness of life. Peter is going to help us and be our guide this morning. First Peter chapter one, starting in verse three, Peter writes, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Father, take us deep into the glories of the resurrection this morning. We pray in the name of Christ, our risen Savior. Amen. For your outline this morning, just to split this passage up, we're going to look at three aspects of what the resurrection produces in us. The hope of the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection produces three things. Number one, a living hope, verses three and four. 
Number one, a living hope, verses three and four. Number two, a salvation that is secured, verses five through seven. And number three, a faithful devotion, verses eight through nine. We'll go through these slowly and see uh, Peter bring these uh, realities of the resurrection to life as we study. Verse three, Peter starts by telling us that we have been given a living hope because of the resurrection. Number one, a living hope because of the resurrection. Verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. He is the one who caused us to be born again. Every Christian is born again. Everyone who is a Christian is born again. And everyone who has been born again has this living hope. We've been studying in the book of uh, John for some time now, and we've seen this topic of being born again. We spent a little bit of time on what it means to be born again. It's an analogy that Jesus uses to say, if you are to come to Christ and follow me and and have salvation, you must be born again. And Nicodemus in John chapter three says, well, how is that possible? How can a man enter his mother's womb a second time and be born again? And the whole point of Jesus's conversation is, what did you contribute to your physical birth? The answer is nothing. All we really contributed was pain and suffering for nine months and then a, a couple of hours, maybe a couple of days if you were not so lucky. Um, it, you didn't contribute anything to your physical birth. So too, how do you get yourself to God? You don't do anything. You can't do anything. God's the one who has to lavish his mercy. Once he creates a new heart in you and you are born again and you have a new heart of flesh and not the heart of stone, then you can respond and you must respond and you will respond. But he caused us to be born again. He is the one who made that happen. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's the one who pulled the veil back to let the glory of God in the face of Christ shine into the darkness of our hearts so that we would see him, believe him, and follow him. Why did he do this? Why did he cause us to be born again? Peter tells us, because of his great mercy. Because of his great mercy. Not because of us. We already knew that because of the phrase born again. We already knew it wasn't what we did to get us born again. It's what God did. But just in case we don't remember that or we have forgotten that because we become so forgetful, Peter reminds us that it's according to his great mercy. What's mercy? Mercy is not giving us what we deserve. God did not give us what we deserved. Obviously, we did not deserve the new birth. We did not deserve grace and salvation We don't deserve life. We deserve death. And so God in his grace has caused us to be born again to a living hope. God did that. This is so important to remember that God is the one who caused you to be born again. And he did it because of his mercy. And the reason why this is important to remember is because our hope rests in God's mercy. Our hope rests in God's mercy. It's not resting in our just deserving If God made you alive and God gave you a new heart and birthed you spiritually because of him alone, then he didn't do it because of you. He did it in spite of you. And that is good news because if you were given the gift of the new birth when you didn't do anything to deserve it, then the good news is you can't do anything to lose it. You can't. If it was a hope that was given to you and a life that was given to you while you were still in your sins, then all of your hope is by God's mercy, in God's mercy, undeserved kindness. And this brings confidence. This brings confidence in your walk when you see, uh, like the hymn writer talks about, having your heart that's wandering, prone to wander. You know that your heart is tethered to Christ. Even when it's wandering, you know, God, bring me back. You were the one who birthed me. You were the one who brought spiritual life. It's only by God's mercy. By the way, this doesn't just change your confidence that God will get you securely to the finish line. This changes everything in your life. When you realize that you did nothing to be given mercy by God, but he just loved you because he loves you, then you can love others that way. You cease to act on the performance track of, well, I'm going to do something and then God will love me. You cease to do that because of the gospel. And you cease to put others on that performance track as well. 
If we understand how much mercy and grace and forgiveness we've been given by God, that he loves us in spite of us, then we can love others in spite of them. We don't put them on a performance track. Well, I will love you if. I will do this to you if. I will treat you nicely if. We don't do that anymore because God didn't do that with us. God did not act that way or treat us that way. I believe only people that understand this reality and live according to it can be the ones that obey the command to love your enemies. How else can you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? How else can you love somebody who has a knife to your throat about to slaughter you? How else can you love them and pray for them and hope that you see them again in heaven? The only way is because you know that you are a rebel with a a knife to God's throat, as it were, and, and God said, Father, forgive him. I don't know. He doesn't know what he's doing and loved you with mercy and with grace and with kindness. It's by his mercy, Peter says. And oh, Peter knows that. Peter knows he's been given mercy. He denied Jesus three times. And Jesus said, do you love me? And Peter says, I do. Three times. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I love you. You love me. I forgive you. He knows mercy, undeserved favor, not getting what we deserve. So Peter says, we have been born again by the mercy of God to a living hope. Why a living hope? Why does he have to put that um, word there? Why isn't it just we've been given hope? Well, logically, if you think about it, the moment that we are born physically, the second that we are born physically, we begin dying. We are born and we die in this life. We know that that's happening. So physically, we are born to a dying hope, if you will. But spiritually, if we are born again, we are not born again to a dying hope. We're born again to a hope that gets better and better and better and better and living hope. The reality is we, especially in our American culture and mindset, we're really good at glossing over death. We don't like to look it in the face. We don't like to think about it. And if we, if we don't like to look at death and think about death and we like to look away and just think about life and try and live forever, then we're going to miss out on the enormous blessing that living hope truly is. Easter ultimately is centered around death, right? Because it's centered around conquering death. If we don't understand death and don't stare at death for at least a little while, we're not going to understand the the blessing and the, the beautiful power of Jesus conquering death once and for all. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, we all admit that we shall die, but not so soon as to make it a pressing matter. We imagine that we are not within measurable distance of the tomb. Even the oldest man gives himself a little longer lease, and when he has passed his 80 years, we have seen him hugging life with as much tenacity as if he had just commenced it. Death will not spare us because we avoid him. We're all going to die. Even though we try to avoid it, the Bible doesn't avoid the topic of death. The Bible is very clear. You you can practically turn anywhere in the Bible and you're going to be very close to somebody dying or some topic of death. Why? Why is the Bible so filled with death? It's because death is God's judgment against and for our sin. Death is God's judgment against our sin and for our sin. Now, to be clear and just to make sure that we understand terms, what is sin One author says it this way, sin is fundamentally opposition to God, rebellion against God, which is rooted in hatred of God. Sin is not just a mistake. Sin is not just I messed up. Sin is fundamentally opposition to God, rebellion against God, and hatred of God. Or to use the words of R.C. Sproul, sin is cosmic treason, wishing God were dead and we were God. Sin is a grievous thing. So if death is punishment and judgment for sin, which is cosmic treason, my question is, why did God choose death? Of all the punishments God could have chosen to punish our sin with, why did he choose death? And I'm going to ask D.A. Carson to help us here. D.A. Carson says it this way. I think this is so helpful. Death is God's limit on creatures whose sin is this. They want to be God's. We are not gods, 
and by death, we learn that we are only human. All of our pretensions are destroyed. Death is God's determination to limit our arrogance. Nobody can go to a funeral and pretend that there's still a God. You know that death is imminent. You know that God doesn't die and that person's dead and I'm going that way too. So nobody can pretend at a funeral that they're a God. That's why Solomon writes, it's better actually to go to a funeral than it is to go to a wedding. Because at a wedding, you just think I've got long years. I can just celebrate and be happy. But to go to a funeral, you realize the end of all man and it helps you to wise up. So death is God's judgment on sinners because our sin is cosmic treason, saying, I want to be God. I want to be God. But that's not all the punishment we receive for our sins. Hebrews 9.27 is so clear. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes judgment. So death is just the beginning of judgment. The judgment we receive is separation from God forever, from from his love, from his grace, from his mercy. Everything that Peter is talking about here, separation from that and only experiencing God's just wrath against our sins. That's why we celebrate Good Friday, because what happened on the cross is God, the Father, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. God took all of our sin, put it onto Jesus, and then punished Jesus as if he had lived our sinful lives. So that when Jesus would rise from the dead, he could offer us a perfect record of righteousness so that God the Father could treat us as if we had lived Jesus' perfect life. That's why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so necessary, because it addresses that most basic need that we must be forgiven of our sins and the judgment and punishment for our sins must be paid. He must die and he must conquer death once and for all. That's what Paul says, by the way. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says this. I know that you know 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this so clearly. The Corinthian church believed that this was all that there was. You live this life, you die, that's it. Nothing else. You didn't um, go to an afterlife. You didn't rise from the dead. So Paul's trying to address that. And he says this, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians uh, 15. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testify against God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise, if in fact the dead aren't raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep or who have died in Christ have perished. And that's it. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So, Paul, what's the, what's the good news here? If death is the judgment for all, and, and if our faith is useless, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what's the good news? And that's where he says in verse 20, emphatically, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. This is a fact, some of your translations might say. But now, in fact, it's true. Christ has been raised from the dead. He is not dead, and therefore our faith is not dead. Our faith is not useless. He has been raised from the dead. This is what should propel us into worship. Part of me just wants to stop and say, Jesus is raised from the dead and keep singing, because this is a joyous celebration to say, in fact, the truth is Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus' resurrection was God the Father publicly attesting to the fact that his death was not in vain. We are not still in our sins. John Stott says it this way. He who had been condemned, that is Jesus, for us in his death, was publicly vindicated in his resurrection. It was God's decisive demonstration that he had not died in vain. Jesus cried out on the cross on Friday, it is finished, it's paid in full, there's nothing left for you to do. And it's as if the father cries out on Sunday morning through the resurrection. Yes, it is finished. It's done. 
It's paid in full. The cross secures our forgiveness, but the empty tomb assures us that that forgiveness is secure. So my question to you, the father was satisfied by the work of the son. The father was satisfied. It's enough. It's finished. I'm going to raise you from the dead. You are risen. My question is, are you satisfied? Is the work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection enough for you? The father says it's enough. He's satisfied. He says no more work needs to be done. So if the father's satisfied by the work of the son, what will it take for you to be satisfied and to rest in the work that Jesus did for you? What will it take for you? Dick Lucas says it this way, Oh, I hope you don't underestimate the forgiveness of sins. For many years I did. I'd gotten the impression that forgiveness was rather preliminary. But rather than preliminary, the forgiveness of sinners, providing reconciliation of God and man and man with God, is the most exciting thing of which the Bible speaks. And we can never get beyond it. We can never get beyond it. So Peter says, the way that you know that you have hope that is alive, that isn't dead, is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The basis of your living hope is the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. Because of the mercy of God in slaughtering his son and in raising him from the dead, we are given the new birth. How does the new birth come through? Uh, Peter says, we've been caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection It's just being united with Christ. We're united, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, therefore it's no longer I who live, but Jesus who lives in me, and that life that I now live in the flesh, I live to his glory. We are united in his death. We are united in his resurrection. So his life and his death and his resurrection count for me. They're mine. And since his life is indestructible and he's alive never to die again, so too we, once we die, we will never die again. We will never die again. That's what Jesus says in John 11. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, will never die. You will never ultimately die. So we have been given a living hope, not a dead hope. It's not death. Death has been conquered. Our sins have been paid in full on the cross. We've been given a living hope. Verse 4. What does that offer us? To obtain an inheritance, this is back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So we have eternal life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we also have an eternal inheritance. We have eternal life that will never fade away, and we have an eternal inheritance which will never fade away. We have an inheritance Uh, a possession that will be realized that we will get one day. Again, it's not like an earthly inheritance. It's not like your 401k that just keeps on going down and down and down and down with the stock market. It's not like that. Listen to the way that Peter describes it. It is imperishable. It is imperishable. That means it can never disappear. It can never die. It can never perish. It will always be. It's undefiled. It's undefiled, which means there's no sinfulness in it. It's pure. It's perfect. There's no defect in it. It won't fade away. It will never become less glorious. This is a great word. Your inheritance in heaven will never fade away. It's a great word to remember when you're um, talking with people that think that heaven's going to be boring. For the first million years, we might enjoy it, and then after that, it's going to get really boring. Peter says, no, it's never going to fade. The glory of your inheritance will never fade. For the, for the first 300 billion years, you're never going to get bored, ever. And it's reserved in heaven for you. It's reserved for you. I'm always the most unlucky person whenever I go to some concert or some conference I can never find a seat, and I go walking around, and I'm talking to my friends on the phone saying, have you found a seat yet? And, and I always find this little pocket of seats, and I'm, I think, this is amazing. Thank you, Lord, for a seat, and I walk up. And these, all of these conference speakers and all of these concert people, all the venues get together, and they just laugh at me because they never put signs and ropes and things that say these are reserved. 
they always put this tiny little post-it note on the, on the seat, not even the back, just on the seat close to the back. So I walk up and I can't see that it's taken. And I, this is great. And I walk up and then I see this whole row has been taken. It's not reserved. My name's not, I'm looking for a Patrick. If it just says Patrick, I'll take it. No, no name, you know, Mr. Mr. Jim Johnson, you know, and now I'm going, who is this Jim Johnson? And why can't I sit where Jim's sitting? Like, who's this guy? In heaven, you have an inheritance that has a post-it note on it that says your name and no one can touch it. It's yours. No one can touch it. It's yours. But it's not now. It's not now. It is to come to obtain, verse 4, an inheritance. There are so many people today, even believers, there's a lot of well-known Christian authors who write such things as, have your best life now. Have your best life now. And they write that for believers. Have your best life now. Now, we can give them the benefit of the doubt of what they're saying, and we should until we confirm the worst and I have read those books and I have confirmed the worst. They're not saying anything good. They're saying prosperity gospel things, which says God came to give you an amazing life here and now, health, wealth, prosperity, and you can command that it would be so. You can make it happen. You can have your best life now. Uh, Jesus says, yes, you can. Jesus says, you can absolutely have your best life now. If you're a non-believer, this is the best life you're ever going to have. If you're a non-believer, the next life that you are going to experience is going to be far worse than you could possibly imagine. The wrath of God against your soul for all of eternity. So if you're a non-believer, this is the best you will ever have life. But if you're a believer, Jesus has promised very clearly, we're going to have trouble, we're going to have trial, we're going to have tribulation. He also said it's going to be filled with joy. This life's going to be filled with joy, inexpressible. But we're going to have trouble here. So as a believer, this isn't your best life now. It's to come. Your inheritance is coming. This is not your best life now. There is one coming that will be better, but it's not here. So if you expect too much out of this life, if you expect this life to be your best life now, this life will absolutely steal and rob your joy. But if you expect this life to be what God said it's going to be, hard, trial, tribulation, through, through many difficulties and persecutions, you will enter the kingdom of God. I'll be with you. Don't have to fear. But it's going to be tough. Then you know this life properly and you will rejoice in the next life because you know, you know what? Everything can be touched in this life. Everything can be taken away in this life. But I have something that's reserved for me that's eternally kept, that's eternally unfading, that will never perish. That is our living hope. It's alive in heaven. It won't fade away. It's undefiled, imperishable, and it's reserved for you and for me. All because we have been born again by the mercy of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, conquering sin and death. That's our living hope. But I think Peter knows the next question that we're going to ask. My question is this. That's great if all that stuff's in heaven. But what if I don't make it there? I want all that, but you're telling me it's not now, it's there. What if I don't get there? We know ourselves. We know that we can totally disqualify ourselves in a moment. Is there something that we can do to lose the salvation that we've been given? This is point number two. No, our salvation is secured Our salvation is secured. So verse 4, not only is our inheritance imperishable, undefiled, won't fade away, reserved in heaven for you, but you are also being protected and being guarded. Verse 5, who are protected by the power of God. So while God is guarding our inheritance in heaven for us, he is actively guarding us for our inheritance. He's going to get us there. He's protecting us by his power. Is there anyone who has greater power than God? No. This is Romans 8. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. If God's the one that is protecting you to get you to heaven, then nobody can take you out of his hands. Nobody can. We're protected by his power. 
How are we guarded practically? What does that look like? Verse 5, middle of verse 5. Through faith. God protects us through our faith in him. And it's a faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We might scratch our head at that. Wait, I thought I was saved. Yes, you are. The Bible uses the word salvation in three different ways. Um, We could put them in categories, justified, sanctified, glorified. The Bible uses in the New Testament that word salvation uses it in three different ways. Sometimes it refers to you have been saved. Um, You have been justified. You've been declared righteous. That's a one-time act. You're saved. If you were to die right now, you would go to heaven. Sometimes the Bible uses it to refer to you are being saved. You are being saved. Present progressive. It's happening right now. That's sanctification. You're being made holy by God's power and through your work. And finally, glorification. You will be saved. Wait, I thought I was saved now. Yes, you are saved, but you will be glorified. You will be saved. And just in case we don't know or, or we're wondering what Peter's saying here, he says, ready to be revealed in the last time. So this is glorification. One day you will be saved, you will be glorified, you will be taken from this life into the next and given heaven for all of eternity. It's secured. It's secured for you. It's secured by God's power, protected by God's power, and it's protected through our faith. What does that mean, through our faith? It means that the way we know our security is by God testing our faith and and making us choose every day do we trust god and his promises or do we want to go our own way that's what faith is faith is saying i believe god and all of his promises are far better for me than anything that this life has to offer so every day we're faced with choices to choose and to prove whether our faith is genuine that's what he's going to say in verse six in this you greatly rejoice that you have a salvation that's secure Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter says it is sometimes necessary for God to use trials in your life to demonstrate whether or not your faith is in him. Are we trusting in him or are we trusting in ourselves? People ask me a lot, what do you do for a living? What do you do for work? I normally just say I'm a pastor. Yeah, I'm a pastor. But I heard one preacher one time say this and I decided, man, I'll give it a shot because it's kind of fun. Uh, Somebody said, what do you do for work? And I said, this is so ridiculous. I said, I'm a bodybuilder. And... um, I got, I got way more laughs than, than what I just received now because um, maybe the suit helps me. Uh, but when I just have a T-shirt and you see, um, the person laughed and I said, yeah, that was really dumb. Um, you know what I mean. I, I, I'm Ephesians 4, I am here. God gave me a gift to build the body up, the body of Christ. Lame pastor jokes. But the reality is, If you're a true bodybuilder, which I have never nor ever will be, you know that to stress your muscles ultimately will strengthen them. To break them down and distress them will make them stronger. And that's exactly what God does to protect your salvation, the the security, your glorification, to protect it. God stresses you. God stresses the muscles of your faith to strengthen them and to show you, I do trust God. I do trust God. So I think we can say it this way. If you care to know if your faith is genuine, then you will welcome trials because they will force you to see that. You'll welcome them. This is what James says in James chapter 1. You're going to welcome, you're going to be grateful, you're going to be thankful because they produce perseverance in your life. This is exactly what happened in the book of Job. Uh, You remember Satan goes before God and God says, do you see this guy, Job? He loves me. He trusts me. He believes in me. And Satan says, yes, I see that. That's obvious. But I know why he does that. He does that because you've given him all these things. He only loves you because of what you have to offer. And as we've been studying in John chapter 6, that's not saving faith. 
To believe in God for what he has to offer you is not saving faith. So Satan's ultimately saying Job doesn't truly believe you. He just loves you because you're a genie. You're, you're a butler. You've given him great things. God says, no, I know this man's heart. Take it all away. He'll still love me. That's what Job does. He still loves God. He struggles for sure, but he still loves God because he never loved God because of what God could give him. And so as God stretches and, and, and stresses his faith, at the end, what does Job say? I, I, used to, I used to know you intellectually, but now I really know you. I, I've experienced, I've seen you. I know you because I went through everything that I went through. So Peter says, some of you, because it's necessary to prove to you that your faith is real. In the trial, you have a, you have a choice. Am I going to trust God and his promises or I'm going to say, enough, I'm out. And again, I, I want to stress, ultimately, you're going to say, I trust God. Usually, our first knee-jerk reaction is to say, nope, no, God, I'm not doing this. But over time, as we walk with the Lord and the Lord tests our faith, we're going to see, verse 7, the proof of our faith. It's more precious than gold. It's imperishable because gold's perishable. It's tested by the fire of trials and of suffering, but it will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, here's where you have to stop. Because whenever I read the words praise, glory, honor, I just go, yeah, that's God's. We are a very God-centered people. We're a very God-centered church. God receives it all. God deserves it all. It's God's glory. But I don't believe that Peter's saying that here. So he says that God the Father will distress us to prove the genuineness of our faith, of your faith. And when the genuineness of your faith is proven, it will be praised. It will be glorified. It will be honored. So once it's tested by trials, by fire, it may be found. So the, proof, the, the faith that you have being genuine will be found to be true and result in praise and glory and honor. It will be praised. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Actually, chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. I think Paul says this in a, in a more simple way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Therefore, don't go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. Don't judge one another. Let the Lord do it, because he will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motive of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from whom? From God. So when I read this in First Peter and I go, Peter, are you saying what I think you're saying? I turn to Paul and I also turn to the Greek and it's abundantly clear. Peter is saying at the end of verse 7 that you will be praised, that you will be given glory, and that you will be given honor when Jesus comes back. What? <laughs> Sounds like blasphemy. We, we used to have a, a joke um, in college group a number of years ago. Whenever we hear something really just kind of sketch, we'd go, heresy, wait. Uh, I want to hear it. I want to I hear what's happening. When I read that, I went, wait, that's heresy. We don't, we don't get glory. We don't get praise. We've actually covered this in the recent months with uh, John looking at the praise that comes from man, that it's fleeting, that it's dying, but God will give you praise. God will rejoice over you. The best reward is when Jesus returns and he puts his arm around you and he says to you, well done, well done. Your faith was true. It's real. I'm giving you praise for that. You get honor. We all want recognition. We all want praise. And the best recognition and the best praise is what comes from Jesus' lips on that last day. It's the only recognition we should ever live for. It's that of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And here's the key. When Jesus praises faith in Jesus, Jesus doesn't lose any glory. When Jesus praises our faith, which is in him, then Jesus is ultimately glorifying himself. He doesn't lose any glory. Christ loses nothing, no glory, no honor, no praise is lost when Jesus praises faith in Jesus. So Peter says, 
you have faith that is protected, that will be stretched. Isn't the stretching of our faith the time when we tend to doubt? When things are going well in our lives, we go, I know I love Jesus, Jesus loves me, I'm secure. And then when things go poorly, when it's stressed, that's when we start to wonder, God, do you love me? I'm struggling with trust. Am I going to? Those are the moments that we should see the evidence of God's grace in our lives. Because God's only going to stress whatever faith you have. If you don't have faith at all, you're not going to be stressed. You're not going to be pressured. So in those moments, cling to Jesus. Press into Jesus. If things aren't going well for you right now, remember that your best life is yet to come. It's not now. Your inheritance is yet to come, not now. But number two, God is loving you because he's showing to you that your faith is true. It's genuine as he's testing it. So we have a living hope. We have a secure faith, all because of the resurrection. We have a secure salvation that will happen. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. So what does this produce? If we have a living hope and a secure salvation, what is our response? Number three. We should have a faithful devotion. Verses 8 and, eight and 9, a faithful devotion. Peter says, though you haven't seen him, you love him. I love that because that's us. We're just like this church in that way. And a lot of other ways we're not. They're suffering in immense ways, but in this way we're just like this church. We haven't seen him. We haven't seen him, but we love him. And though we don't see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You haven't seen him, but you love him. You cannot love somebody that you haven't seen and you don't know. You can love somebody that you haven't seen if you know him. But you can't love somebody that you haven't seen and you haven't known. So the reality is, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? If you do know him truly, you will love him. If you don't love him, then you don't know him. So I just want to ask three questions as we look at faithful devotion. Just three questions that I think Peter raises here. Number one, does your life demonstrate a love for Jesus? Does your life demonstrate a love for Jesus? Now, this is where many preachers would tell you this is what a love for Jesus looks like. Here's a list. I don't want to do that. I don't think I need to do that. I think you have to be very careful if you do that. There's obvious fruit of the Spirit in here that is evidence of salvation in the Bible. But I don't want to have a a legalistic list of do's and don'ts. If you love Jesus, you will. We've all been there. We don't want that. I'll just say it this way. It's obvious when you love something. It's obvious. Um, You you know uh, Pastor Steve Lively at the bridge, worship pastor at the bridge. Um, It's obvious every time his phone rings what he loves, who he loves. Every time that his phone, his cell phone rings, as loudly as possible. I've been in counseling sessions where the person next to me is just weeping, and all of a sudden his phone rings, and I hear all the way across the office, and it's the Trojan theme song, just fight on as loud as possible. If you love something, it's not wrong to love the Trojans. Well, maybe for some of you it is. Uh, If you love something, you're going to take time to figure out how can I make a ringtone for this because I love them. If you love something, it'll be obvious. You can walk into any restaurant, any Starbucks, and you can see somebody wearing the hat of a sports team. I own hats of sports teams. It's obvious that I love them enough to spend money to to say, hey, I enjoy this team. So my question to you is, does your life demonstrate, is it obvious that you love Jesus? Is it obvious that you love him? Or do you have to play that very dangerous game of, I don't know if I, well, this kind of, I think that's enough. I think this is enough evidence. This is enough proof that I love Jesus. That's good. No. Remember, people on the last day say that before Jesus. Look at what I did. I did work. I worked hard for you. I cast out demons. I taught. I I kept all these rules. And he says, I never knew you. 
I never knew you. Number two, so not only does your life demonstrate a love for Jesus, number two, does your life demonstrate a deep-seated trust in him? Does your life demonstrate a trust that is immovable and unshakable? In trials, where do you ultimately turn? Do you believe in him with joy inexpressible? Where do you ultimately turn? Again, not first. We want to be first in trials turning to Jesus. But where do you ultimately turn? Where's your ultimate hope? Do we love him? Do we believe him in the midst of trials? Or do trials prove that you aren't really trusting in Jesus at all? Number three, does your life demonstrate a joy not dependent on circumstances around you? Does your life demonstrate a joy that is not dependent on circumstances around you? If you are saved, you have the promise of an inheritance that is yet to come but can never be taken away. So your joy should be in Christ, which will never be taken away, so you can rejoice in the midst of the worst circumstances in your life. If you believe that and you live according to it, that belief will change your joy. Happiness is just emotions dependent on circumstances. Joy will never go away because it's in Jesus Christ and he can never be taken away. So to sum it all up, uh, to sum up all of these things, if we could kind of put them into a list from Peter's perspective. We experience, number one, faith. We experience faith in verse 5. We believe, we trust, we rest in Jesus. Number two, we love Jesus. We haven't seen him, but we know him, so we love him. Number three, we have joy. We have joy inexpressible because we have an inheritance that will never be taken away. We have a salvation that is secure. Number four, we do have sorrow. We do have sorrow, but we are 2 Corinthians 6.10 people. We are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We are in the midst of trials. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, every day should be a sad day for you because you know souls that are on their way to hell. So at the very least, every day should be a sad day and every day should be a happy day for you. Don't try and carve your life out into, you know, happy days and sad days. This was a happy day. That's a sad day. Every day should be a happy day and a sad day simultaneously. There is such a thing where joy doesn't go away when grief and sorrow come in. And that's what a believer knows. And finally, fifth, you have assurance. You have faith, love, joy, sorrow, and you have assurance. You are being protected and kept by the power of God. That's why 1 Peter chapter 3.15 says, Now you have an, uh, an answer when people ask you for the hope that you have in you. What reason do you have for the hope? Well, it's because it's a living hope. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It won't ever go away. And if somebody were to ask you, how do you know that? If somebody were to ask Peter that, how do you know that you have a, a hope that is alive, that it will never go away, that you have an inheritance undefiled? And how do you know those things? Peter's answer in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, is because Jesus was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead. I know that. I saw him. I saw him die. I saw him buried. I saw him put into the tomb. And then I saw his body. The tomb is empty. He's alive. So, in conclusion, just two points for conclusion. Number one, do you have that hope? Do you have that hope? If you do not, I, I just want to make a plea this morning. Jesus died for you. Your sins against a holy God deserve your just punishment. My sins deserve separation from God for all of eternity and only God's wrath against my sin. That's just. That's a deserved punishment. And so the father said, I don't want Patrick to perish in his sins, so I'm going to send Jesus. And I'm going to treat him and crush him as if he had lived Patrick's sinful life so that I could treat Patrick as if he lived Jesus' perfect life. My question to you is, have you received that eternal life? Have you received the eternal life offered through Jesus alone? We've talked about evidences of how you know, how you can know if you receive that. There's different evidences that Peter has given us. But how can you know today? How can you have assurance today? You have to know. You have to know the facts, which we all know. God is holy. You're a sinner. Jesus is the only way. And he died for you. You have to know. But knowing's not enough. The demons know. 
The demons not only know, they believe. Belief isn't enough. Knowing and belief, the demons believe that God is one. They believe, they tremble, they shudder. They're terrified. Why? Because they refuse to do the third step. You must know, you must believe, and you must commit your way to Jesus. Mark chapter 8 in our family Bible hour, Jesus is going to say, unless you take up your cross, follow me. You have to die to yourself. You have to realize sin deserves punishment. It leads to death. So you say, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm following Jesus. Once you receive the gospel that you receive, there's no way that you can get to God on your own. You're not good enough. You need Jesus to be good enough on your behalf. Then and only then, as the new birth takes place in your heart, can you say, I'm going to follow you. Repentance, turning from sin. You can be assured today that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you if you would turn to Christ and commit your life to him. If you would do that today, you would have a living hope because God is great in mercy. He raised Jesus from the dead to give you new life. We need that. We all have an inheritance naturally. When we are born, our inheritance, Ephesians chapter 2, is wrath. We are by nature children of wrath. And so Jesus came to give you new life and a new inheritance. If you believe in him, you will rejoice in him. You'll be kept by him. And I plead that God would do that work in our souls today. But lastly, number two, what is all of this for? Paul, Peter tells us in First. Peter chapter 1, verse 3. What's all this for? Everything that we've looked at, everything that we know to be true. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we do in this service and beyond is done to praise our great God. And so it would only be fitting that we would spend the remainder of our time together blessing his name for what he has done. God, thank you for the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ through the resurrection. Thank you that he was raised from the dead, taking all of our punishment and doing away with it. He bore it on the cross so that we would never have to fear one ounce of the Father's wrath. And so you are worthy of all praise, all glory, because of what you have done. So God, be pleased now as we sing songs that are informed by Scripture, that are Scripture-saturated, Be pleased to work in us the living hope that you have promised. May we see the security that we have in Jesus and what he has done. And may we rejoice with joy inexpressible because of our Savior's great love.